It's time for our regular segment with barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It's Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? I'm doing great. You know, I'm just happy the uh, phone lines uh, haven't been uh, clogged at my office here with, you know, BC Ferries calling uh, <laughs> to hire me to defend them uh, against a fine to be paid to the provincial government that owns 100% of the corporation. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll be busy with that going forward. I'm glad that you and others uh, can appreciate just how novel the proposal for the, to do that is. It it borders on the absolutely bizarre, but uh, anyways, I guess uh, we are perhaps dealing with the uh, B team in terms of some of these uh, policies. But there there we are. All right, let's dive in. What's on the docket this week? Uh, so the first case on the uh, agenda is a, a case uh, involving a application for child support uh, against a uh, former stepfather. Is how the, uh, the language of it would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I must say, reading the case, there's nothing uh, uh, sort of unusual or improper with the judge's analysis. The judge seems to uh, uh, follow the requirements of the BC Family Law Act. But the result of the BC Family Law Act is one that I think might not quite be in accordance with what most people would think would be a fair outcome. Uh, and it's something I think people should be aware of because it has potentially very large uh, financial implications uh, for people who wind up in a circumstance like the man in this case. Uh, the background of it is that there was two real estate agents who got into what was described as an on-again, off-again relationship. Uh, the uh, uh, female real estate agent had three children from a uh, prior um, marriage uh, who were now 18, 15, and 12. Um, the father of the uh, three children appears to be from the judgment. I think no better way to describe him as uh, anything other than a deadbeat who basically hasn't paid any child support mm. uh, and engaged in other uh, terrible activities, including uh, one incident described here where he uh, apparently uh, doused the uh, defendant stepfather with lighter fluid in an apparent effort to light him on fire. So that probably gives you some idea of who the the child's biological father is. Wow. So the relationship here is described as a on-again, off-again relationship that went over a period of seven years. But clearly for much of that, uh, the couple, uh, the two real estate agents uh, weren't living together. But there was a stretch of at least two and a half years where the two did reside together. Uh, and that is important for how the definition of spouses work under the Family Law Act. And what that act does, it provides that if you live with another person continuously for at least two years, you meet the definition of spouse, hmm. which has a number of implications. First of all, in terms of division of property, but also uh, it engages other sections of that uh, that act that provide that if somebody acts in the sort of role of a parent uh, for a period of one year hmm. uh, and they are providing support for the children for that one year. So you have to be both that two-year period, and then for one of those years, some support for the children. You can then wind up being uh, responsible under that act for paying child support for the children forever. Um, And that's what happened here. Uh, The judge found that the uh, two uh, individuals lived together for at least two and a half years. Tick, he's a spouse. uh, And that while living together, uh, he did various things, then wind up getting outlined in the judgment, things like he went on vacations with the the claimant and the children. Uh, he took the children skiing and celebrated their birthdays. Uh, 
And then at some point, he wound up helping pay for their private school tuition. Well, that's support for the children. Hmm. Uh, And because the children's biological father is clearly a deadbeat, it meant that under the act, uh, he then was found to be responsible for paying child support indefinitely. The relationship's now long over, uh, but he was uh, just ordered to pay uh, child support in the amount of $4,362 per month, uh, retroactive another $91,000 in child support, and he has also been ordered to continue to uh, share paying half of the children's private school fees uh, indefinitely until they're done. Um, now, there are a couple of things about that. One other interesting point uh, that was dealt with in the case is that uh, this fellow is a real estate agent, um, and he had created uh, back in, it sounds like 2017, um, a personal real estate corporation. You've probably seen real estate agents that have that, sort of yeah. ERC, right? Yeah. Uh, and so they've created a company that kind of uh, that then is uh, receiving the fees and so on, and there are legitimate reasons for having that. For tax planning purposes, somebody could spread out you know, income over more than one year, for example, right? So there might be some reasons or reasons to save for retirement. So they're good and legitimate reasons to have such a thing. But it looks like what he was, in fact, doing was just charging virtually all manner of personal expenses to that real estate corporation uh, in order to make it look like he had no income. So he was trying to write off all of his mortgage payments, all of his household expenses, uh, uh, $44,000 in meals, including various hamburgers and so on, and uh, liquor store purchase purchases and medical expenses and legal fees, everything you can imagine to make his uh, income appear to be nothing, right? Uh, and under the uh, the guidelines, and there's sort of a table or guidelines for how much child support or uh, should be paid, you would generally, the starting point would be go across the table, find the person's income, go down the column, that's how much you owe, right? To try to reduce litigation. Uh, now, his argument would, I guess, be, well, I didn't have any income, so I guess we're right at the top of the table or bottom, whatever way it's organized. Uh, and uh, that didn't lie. Uh, and the uh, judge did, again, what you would expect a judge to do, was to look beyond that uh, and to essentially back out the uh, personal expenses that were listed as deductions to reduce tax liability. And so that's how the judge came to uh, the uh, income figure that resulted in this order to pay $4,300 a month going forward uh, for these uh, three children. Um, and so uh, I, I should say that that obligation to pay support as a step parent is described in the Act as being a, a secondary obligation to the person who is the parent of the uh, child, right? And so had the parent of the, had the father of these children not been a kind of deadbeat that throws lighter fluid on, on people and doesn't see his kids are paying any child support, uh, then this fellow would not have wound up with a lifetime obligation potentially to support the children uh, on the basis of this on-again, off-again relationship and taking the kids skiing. Uh, but People should be aware of those things. First of all, that uh, it's just policy decisions under this act of the decision we've made to treat people who live in a marriage-like relationship for two years as essentially being married, right, for the purpose of things like division of property. And that one, I'm sure, for people is just uh, unexpected, right? It, you know, it's clear when people go and say, hey, we're getting married, they kind of have agreed to sign on together. It's kind of a team operation that should be apparent to all concerned. But I'm sure there are many people that don't appreciate how the Family Law Act works in B.C. and could wind up with very significant 
financial obligations unwittingly. Uh, and that, in combination with uh, how that act operates uh, to create finan- ongoing financial obligations to support uh, children, where somebody does that for a period of one year, and it doesn't take much, right? As those things like, well, you, you went skiing with the family um, or whatever it might be, or here, the, the fellow helped pay their school fees. Yeah. And so that was enough to uh, tag him with the responsibility for life because the uh, ch- children's father just wasn't paying. Um, and so I think it's one of those examples, you know, as we've talked about before, most of the time, a legal result is sort of the result that most people, if they thought carefully about a circumstance, would say, yeah, that seems about what I would expect, right? As it should be, right? Legal results are generally in accordance with um, sort of community values in a very broad way, right? And the common law uh, develops that, and, you know, there are other influences on it. But there are some real meaningful policy decisions that have been made, and they're nothing more than that, in the provincial legislation dealing with um, family and children. And I mean, I suppose the, the goal, or the, sort of the policy justification would be, well, we're going to make sure the kids are taken care of, right? And if, the, uh, if this uh, fellow isn't uh, paying uh, for them, I guess the public would have some obligation to, or, you know, the kids wouldn't have as much as they otherwise would have. But we've made these uh, decisions in terms of how we're going to treat people as spouses and how we're going to uh, continue to have child support obligations in circumstances which may not accord with what somebody might think would happen. And so that's why I thought it was an important case to talk about just so people can be aware of those things and organize themselves accordingly, right? And if people are uh, you know, making an informed, eyes-open decision to get into a relationship and knowing what the uh, long-term implications of that should be. People are adults, fair enough, right? Uh, but some of these things may be uh, sort of unexpected, and so that's why I thought uh, it was important to let people know about. Absolutely. Always good to know about the latest developments and implications. Let's take our first break. Legally speaking, we'll continue right after this. All right, we're back on the air with Legally Speaking here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, next on the docket, I see parental consent and adoption intersecting. Yes, indeed. And so this next case involves uh, the operation of the Adoption Act in British Columbia. uh, And in particular, the uh, requirements for consent for an adoption. And the background to it, it involves a uh, 15-year-old boy who's a Métis, uh, whom, uh, who has been raised essentially by his stepmother uh, virtually since birth. Uh, the uh, description from the judge was the uh, child's mother uh, was 18 when she uh, gave birth to him uh, and has had was described as limited involvement uh, in his life uh, up to this point. Uh, the connection between the two was that the person looking to adopt was the stepmother of the daughter who had the child at age 18, uh, and that uh, the daughter who had the eight, the child at age 18, her father uh, was married uh, to the um, stepmother, but uh, he passed away a short time ago, um, sadly. So that's the, the connection. Uh, and the uh, case involved after that uh, period of time, the as I said, the uh, stepmother had uh, cared for this uh, child virtually his whole life. Uh, it sounds like the child has a number of challenges. He's on the autism spectrum and was diagnosed with, uh, described as global development delay, hmm. uh, but uh, nonetheless appears to be doing well in terms of going to school and so forth. 
Uh, and the the act, the Adoption Act, provides that if you're looking to adopt a child uh, who is over the age of 12, you need to have consent from both the child uh, and the child's parents. Uh, and in this case, the mother of the child uh, did not consent. Um, she didn't want uh, the child to be formally adopted by the stepmother. Uh, and there was some speculation as to why that might be so, involving um, uh, entitlement to her father's estate, but there wasn't clear evidence of that. But her stated reason for objecting, and this was the other uh, interesting element of the case, mm -hmm. uh, was that the stepmother was not Métis. Hmm. Uh, and under the Adoption Act, there are special provisions, Section 3.1, that sets out a whole number of special criteria that apply, when a child is Indigenous that don't apply to other children. Hmm. Um, and the, the broad requirement of the Act, or the broad decision-making for a judge when they're deciding, are they going to grant an adoption, and are they going to grant an adoption where a parent is not consenting to it, is, is that in the best interest of the child? It's a pretty good test. Yeah. Um, and there are a whole number of things that are listed there that one would expect, like the child's safety and physical and emotional needs and so forth. But for children who are... Uh, indigenous, there are a number of other special considerations, things like they describe cultural continuity, transmission of language, cultures, practices, customs, traditions, ceremonies, knowledge of the child's indigenous community, uh, preservation of the child's connection to the indigenous community. And so there's some special considerations there. And that's what the mother was relying on, saying, well, I'm Métis, my stepmother is not, and you ought not to grant the adoption for that reason. Uh, now, the other interesting element here is because the child was on the autism spectrum, there was an argument made by the mother that, well, he can't really consent. Hmm. Um, that argument didn't get, uh, ultimately, what the judge did was order an uh, independent um, uh, report about the wishes of the child. Uh, and when asked, uh, the child, the 15-year-old was asked what adoption was, and he described it in these terms, adoption is loving, caring, and helping me out when I need something. It's a pretty good definition. Uh, and then was asked how long an adoption would last for. And his answer, I, th I love this one too, it is forever, way past when I'm finished grade 10. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> um, and then also asked, well, did you want to be adopted by, right, uh, the person who had raised him? Uh, and the answer was, yes, of course, I think it's a good idea, and I want to be here forever. She likes to call me silly goose, and that is how I know she loves me. Hmm. So pretty good answers from the... Uh, 15-year-old. Yeah. Uh, and so the judge found, no, indeed, he did he is consenting to it. He can consent to it. Uh, now, with respect to the uh, the issues, those special considerations that would apply when a child is Indigenous, the uh, judge looked at various efforts that the mother had made to uh, allow the child to be exposed to his Métis heritage. Métis heritage. Um, and he had that heritage through her uh, husband who passed away. That was the origin of it. Um, and she found that uh, the judge found uh, that the per, the um, prospective uh, uh, mother who wanted to adopt um, had uh, done things including becoming a foster parent and providing a home environment for other children who are Métis, uh, that she'd hosted uh, 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 Aboriginal agencies, including uh, music and other events, dancing and drumming, and to increase her knowledge, she had enrolled in university-level First Nations course, First Nations course. So she had certainly made real efforts in that regard. And so given um, all of that and those special considerations, 
the judge found that it was in the best interest of the child uh, to grant the adoption, even over the objection of the mother, uh, who had had uh, very described as very little contact with the child over the past 10 years, and I think no contact, or virtually none, since 2021. Um, and so that's how the Adoption Act works. That's the kind of consent that's required, and those are the special considerations that apply uh, when you're dealing with a uh, Indigenous child. Um, and again, the overarching uh, consideration is what's in the best interest of the child, uh, and that's what was uh, found to be the case here. Uh, and so that's why I thought it would be worth uh, letting people know about it. The next story has a term that I hear quite often, but I'm not even sure I could give you a comprehensive definition of. What does the term fiduciary duty mean, and how does it uh, figure into our next story? Great question. So the, the next story uh, is a, a case involving uh, a small um, First Nation band in British Columbia, a band under the Indian Act. Um, and uh, it was a, a claim made by some members of the band that the uh, people who were on the band council were making financial decisions uh, that were in their own best interest and contrary to, as the language you use, the fiduciary obligation they owed to, they argued, the members of the band. Hmm. And the idea when you have a fiduciary relationship is that the person who is the fiduciary has an obligation to make decisions that are not in their best interest or to help them out, but to help their the people they're responsible for. And so there'd be many examples of that. Be For example, uh, a lawyer, when they're giving advice to a client, needs to give advice that's in the client's interest, right? Not yes. somehow in the lawyer's interest. Or if a doctor's providing you advice, right? They need to give you medical advice that's in your interest, not in the doctor's interest, right? Um, and in the context of a fiduciary relationship where there are financial uh, uh, requirements, uh, or financial obligations, uh, there's also a requirement uh, that uh, when you're making decisions as a fiduciary, uh, that you're not doing them in sort of a self-dealing way to financially benefit yourself. Hmm. And the, when the idea is there is you shouldn't be making decisions that allow you to profit from the decisions that you're supposed to be making to help others. Um, and so that's the context of the case. And it's also interesting because the case is being appealed on the issue of to whom do the, does the band council, the chief and council, owe a fiduciary obligation to? Hmm. Uh, and the trial judge found that the uh, band uh, council owed a fiduciary obligation to the members of the band um, and found in this case that that had been breached in a serious way by doing things like uh, giving each other the members of the uh, band council uh, various multiple jobs, like one person gave themselves, they gave one person a job of community health representative, uh, national native alcohol and drug abuse program worker, health director, band manager, bookkeeper, and social worker, and then paid them for all of those various tasks, even though, for example, this person had been paid for more than 20 years uh, to act as a alcohol and drug abuse program worker, mm -hmm. but could remember only one person she helped back in 1996. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I see. And so for 20 years, she was paid to do effectively nothing. Hmm. Uh, and given all of these multiple jobs, and then in addition to giving each other all of these jobs and setting the salaries for them, uh, the members of the band council uh, were also paying themselves to attend meetings, like setting 
amounts of money to go to a meeting. And one of the things that took place was that uh, they received, the band did, um, $125,000 from Kinder Morgan uh, to fund, quote, engagement, close quote, uh, between Kinder Morgan and the band. And then the members of the band council uh, proceeded to essentially pay that money to themselves to attend meetings with Kinder Morgan. Um, And so very much in their interest, (laughs) not so much in the interest of all the other people who were band members, right? And so the case was brought by some members of this small band saying, hey, these people are, the band council is just doing a bunch of things to help themselves financially, not us. Uh, And the judge agreed uh, and ordered that the uh, band members or the band council members, the chief and others, pay this money back, uh, including that hundred and whatever it was, $25,000 they got from Kinder Morgan, uh, and further imposed punitive damages on each of them. Uh, I think the chief, 50000 and two of the other people, twenty-five dollars and $10,000. The judge found, of course, it was very difficult to try to unwind all of this because it had been going on for just so long, right? And the band members of the band council described was described by the judge as feeling aggrieved that this case had been brought uh, to stop this practice. Now, the other interesting element to it, as I mentioned, is that the case is being appealed. And the argument on the appeal, or one of the arguments on the appeal described by the Court of Appeal, uh, is an argument by the members of the band council that they don't owe a, finan- a fiduciary relationship to the members individually of the band. They want to argue that they only owe some, I guess, broad fiduciary duty to the band in some general way, Hmm. rather than all the people who are members of it. It seems a bit of a hair splitter, Uh, but that's the argument they're making. Hmm. Uh, The case is currently uh, in the Court of Appeal, and there was recently an application by a group called the Band Members Alliance and Advocacy Association of Canada wanting to intervene to argue that, yeah, the people who are on the council owe a duty to the band members, right? Hmm. Don't do this. The Court of Appeal found that it wasn't necessary to add that group as an intervener uh, because the original people that brought the case were arguing exactly that. Um, And so we don't have a final decision by the Court of Appeal, but it's clear what the argument is going to be there. And so we'll need to wait and see what the Court of Appeal has to say uh, about whether uh, bands under the Indian Act uh, have a f- actual fiduciary obligation to the members of the band, uh, which would translate to things like you can't just set your own salary and pay yourself to go to meetings and, and employ your relatives and give yourself five jobs that don't have any task associated with them. Uh, and so I must say it's a very disappointing case to read. Uh, and, you know, in terms of the, you know, very poor conditions that you know, many First Nations people find themselves in, yes. uh, and the very large amount of money which is spent trying to ameliorate those things. It's many billions and billions of dollars. And you just have to hope that this case isn't indicative uh, of uh, how that money is being spent. Because if the money is being spent in this way, uh, you know, however you want to parse out who the fiduciary obligation is to, boy, uh, this is not uh, the kind of governance that anyone uh, would hope is going on. So we'll need to wait and see what the final word is from the Court of Appeal on who the obligation is owed to, uh, but you would uh, hope that this and similar things uh, are not uh, more widespread. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Thank you very much, Michael. Pleasure as always. 
Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye now.